What's good, everybody? I'm John Zastrzemski, host of New York, New York with JJ, the first podcast on the Ringer and Spotify dedicated to you, the New York sports fan. We've got episode three nights a week, plus bonus episodes whenever news breaks. So make sure you follow the show on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. This episode is brought to you by cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. This is Larry Wilmore. You're listening to Black on the Air. Appreciate you choosing this podcast to listen to. A real easygoing episode today with my old pal, Bill Simmons. We're catching up. Bill, of course, the fearless leader of the ringer. Bill and I are rivals in our um, <laughs> basketball um, fanship. Of course, I'm a big Laker fan. He's a big Celtics fan. So we're going to talk a little sports today. And uh, a little culture and that kind of stuff. Some of the stuff Bill is working on. A little catch-up, as you will. I haven't, I haven't talked to Bill in a long time. It's always fun to catch up with him and shoot the shizney, as we say. So, a uh, nice kind of fun episode today talking to my old pal, Bill. And, uh, you know, I've been real busy, you guys. Um, I haven't had a chance to um, really pay attention to the news this week. i got a lot going on. But... I wanted to let you know we have some really, really, um, really cool guests coming up. And we'll be covering some of the things that are going on in a little more detail with the guests. One of them, of course, is the whole abortion thing that's going on with the Supreme Court right now. And we'll, we will cover that next week with my guest. Um, that's going to be, I'm really looking forward to that show. It's going to be a lot of fun. And some other things coming up, too, that should be kind of cool towards the end of the year. Another thing I wanted to say, this is a good time of year, too, that I like to communicate with you guys out there. See what you want. Um, tweet me any questions you have. Maybe uh, right before Christmas, we'll do a good uh, catching up with your questions. Anything you want to ask me about showbiz, about writing, about culture, about the world, about race stuff, you know, whatever it is, my opinion on things, if you want to challenge me or whatever. I know you guys do that a lot, which is great. I love it when you guys challenge me. Um, anything you want to ask, go ahead and tweet it to me. Um, and what is, what am I at Larry? One more, something like that on Twitter. Um, easy to find. And I would love to answer your questions and see what's on your mind. Also, if there's anything you want me to talk about in the weigh in coming up too, especially if it's, uh, 
um, holiday themed or whatever, you know, but it could be personal too. You know, if you got something going on in your relationship, you want me to talk about. And also any of the philosophy stuff I've shared with you guys, if you want more talk on that, I'm happy to share that with you. Um, I love talking about that stuff. That stuff I could talk about for hours. And you know, I actually, I told you, I thought about doing a whole different pod and some of that kind of stuff. Cause, um, I've had those conversations with friends and family members over the years. And I think, um, have really helped people and uh, people who I care about too, just really get some clarity in their lives and some, you know, just some vision for how to operate a little, a little better in the world and that kind of stuff. So I love doing that. So if you're stuck or you're having some issues and problems and that kind of stuff, if it's personal, tweet that at me too. I'd be, I would love to talk about that stuff with you guys if you want, you know, also, it could. Um, this pod is always evolving too. I want you to know if if there are more of those topics you want me to talk about as we come into the new year, and if you have guests um, who you'd love me to talk about, which kind of opens up some of the conversations that we're having here, I would love to hear that too. Um, so I'm asking you reach out, y'all. Let me know what you want to talk about. All right. So I don't have a lot to say today like i said i have more coming up but i will say man i'm so tired of COVID right now you guys and now this whole new variant the omicron i don't even know if i'm pronouncing it right i thought it was omnicron or whatever um you know (laughs) i haven't been to my office in almost two years it'll be in march like they keep uh pushing off that date of when you can return, you know, and all that kind of stuff. It's crazy. It's making me think, I don't know if COVID's going away anytime soon, you guys. It makes me think, remember when AIDS came around and we didn't know how long that was going to last or whatever. AIDS is, HIV AIDS is still here. We just learned to live with it. You know, of course it wasn't transmittable in the same way as, as COVID is, you know, but it was something that we just kind of got used to. And I think COVID is here to stay. This, this, uh, this virus, you know, um, and hopefully here's what I'm hoping. I'm hoping that these variants, even though they're a little trickier in how we're able to catch it, like vaccinated people can catch it and pass it and all this stuff. I'm hoping that maybe it's getting weaker as it's mutating. Like it's, it's getting less effective. Cause what I've heard about Omicron is that I haven't heard that the symptoms are worse, but that the, um, spreadability to make up a word is probably more it's more virulent in how it's spread and how you can catch it especially with people who have been vaccinated which makes it scarier but apparently at least so far the effect of it isn't worse you know but we'll see all of this is new information it might be by the time you listen to this that might be totally the opposite <laughs> you know who knows like it keeps changing but here's what i would like I would like for this um, thing to stop being so fucking divisive. I am so tired of COVID being divisive, you know, where we have to take sides, you know, vaccinated versus unvaccinated, you know, um, certain COVID therapies versus just trusting what, you know, whatever, you know, people doing our own quote unquote research as opposed to listening to experts or whatever. I just want this to stop being so political and divisive. Can it, can we just accept the fact that people are different, different people have different ways of doing things. Bodies are different, you know, 
if we can just accept the fact that not everybody wants to do something the same way, but if we can agree that can we try to fight it together, you know, in some kind of way, I'm not saying I have the answer of how to do that. This is just one of my early wishes <laughs> for Christmas. Please, you guys. Now, one here's here's what I think. I think one of the most effective ways that we're going to have to fight this, and this is where I think government can play a big role, is in at-home testing. If they can really, really nail down a really good, effective at-home test um, that you can use, like before you go out, before you're going to be seeing people and that kind of thing, to me, that's a game changer. And then the conversation can stop around who's vaccinated, who's not, who's taking this, who's doing this kind of therapy. All that is still important. It's not that it's not important. I'm vaccinated. I feel people should get vaccinated. But I actually feel more secure knowing that I'm negative, you know, that I don't have COVID, knowing that you can get COVID while you're vaccinated. So if you if you're going somewhere and you know that you're negative, at least, you know, you're going somewhere uh, in a certain state. So if you come back and you have COVID or something, at least you know what happened and where you got it and that type of thing. But I think it's, it'll be, I think it'll make parents feel a lot better about, you know, uh, just their kids going places and that type of thing. Um, if you're caring for older people and that type of stuff to be able to take tests at home more frequently to make sure COVID didn't sneak in some way, because as we know, it's asymptomatic. Somebody could have it and be asymptomatic and you not even know but if you have some reliable at-home tests it would be great the second part of this though is i really think these tests should not be sold i really think they should be free and i believe in many places in the world they are including the uk which is so smart you should be able to walk into a drugstore and just ask for one of these and they give it to you period with a t period I don't like this whole insurance thing. Get insurance out of it, you know. And let's stop acting like insurance is the be all end all of stuff. That's that that is a racket, just like anything else. But the last thing you want is people being, you know, is having to pay for these things and then try to run down the insurance company to get their money back, which we know is fraught with so much disappointment and obstacles and all that stuff. If the government is going to put their money into anything, from my point of view. Free at-home testing. Have it available to everyone and anyone that wants it. If people want it shipped to them or they want to pick it up somewhere. If this is a free thing and we don't have to worry about paying for it, I believe that that is a game changer of how we're going to live with COVID. Not eradicate COVID, but live with COVID. Because this is how we have to change our mindset. We have to stop acting like we're going to get rid of COVID. I don't believe that's the right mindset. We have to figure out a way of how can we live with COVID and not have to have the government locked down and all these types of things and all these restrictions that are hurting some of the businesses and everything like that, you know. And I think having a reliable way to live with this, you know, giving yourself a little more confidence and knowing that you don't have it, I think is a game changer. All right. So anyhow, that's all. Ain't got much more than that. Okay. All right. So, like I said, fun episode this week. We got a lot of fun stuff coming up before Christmas. Tweet me your questions, things that you want me to answer, things you want me to engage in, that kind of stuff. I want this pod to really be for you guys. I want you to enjoy it. I want you to hear the things. 
you know, challenge me, all that kind of stuff, whatever it is. Um, just trying to have as much fun as possible. All right, coming up next, we got my boy. That sounds so ridiculous. <laughs> Bill Simmons, cover right up. This episode is brought to you by Hyundai. What does your next drive look like? Running between meetings? Maybe a getaway with the whole family? Either way, the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the capable SUV that's built for your life with premium interiors, available wireless charging, and room for your whole cargo and crew. Okay, Hyundai. Visit HyundaiUSA.com to learn more about the all-new 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. Welcome back, everybody. It's always uh, a pleasure, honor, and so much fun to have my boy, Bill Simmons, the fearless leader of the ringer and the loudest Celtics fan I know. I don't know a louder one. Not loud lately. Not loud lately. I know. I feel the same way. But it's always great to have him on. Uh, we haven't talked in a while. And it's great to have him on. Bill Simmons, welcome to Black on the Air, my friend. How you doing? It's good to see you. We always would run into each other at the ringer offices because you'd be taping. That. And now we're month 22 of the pandemic, whatever it is. I know. I never run into anybody. I wanted to ask you, how have you been? I mean, how are how are you holding up through all of this? Because it, it goes like, it seems like we're going to get out of it. And then we like crash down again, like variant and all that stuff. I know. And I, I sometimes I feel like the media does manipulate this stuff a little. I, I, yeah. There needs to be a third side. It's like there's that one side over one way, one side the other way. And there's that third side where this Omicron and everybody's going nuts. And then you read and it's like mild symptoms. It's like, all right, Right. well, so does this mean I can't travel for the holidays now? Because I might get the flu, which I got every year when I traveled. So I don't know what to make of anything anymore. But I I have no idea. I do feel like there's it does feel like it's a cottage industry now to just make everybody yeah. freak out and panic constantly. I was watching good morning America this morning and it, it was like freak out, freak out, freak out, freak out. Here's Alec Baldwin. Yeah. Uh, Michael Strahan's going into space, uh, more freak out, freak out. And I was like, <laughs> all right, I'm going to watch first take. <laughs> I'm going to go to my safe place. Stephen A. Smith, a different type of freak out, right? Yeah. Yeah. At least it's a controlled freak out with Stephen. I know it's speaking of him. I was at the Knicks game last night. I was in New York and you mm. talk about, just weird like so new york is pretty strict about vaccine mandates and this type of thing you can't get around we had to have show the vaccine and then no one's wearing a mask inside msg i'm like wait a second (laughs) you guys feel that safe it was very disarming because coming from la it just feels a little different you know i know i had my daughter at a soccer tournament last week in san diego and there you can just go in places without a mask yeah. Right. You can be in an elevator without a mask in the hotel, right. and then you go ninety minutes, and now I can't be in it. Now I now I have to wear a mask, and right. You go in a restaurant, you have to wear a mask as you walk from the front door to the table. Then you sit down, you take off your mask. It's like what what is the point of all of this? Why are we doing this? I feel yeah, and so much of the news is agendaized to make up a word. I just don't half the time. I don't know what to believe or what's right. And if you use common sense, people will make fun of you. You know, right. <laughs> so my son, my son played flag football. They won the title. Congrats to them. No masks. Now right. they're playing basketball, eighth grade basketball masks. So get, they get they play basketball, the mask on. It's like, so was he less likely to get COVID playing flag football where you're blocking somebody and you're running your people's personal space over and over right, again? Right, just right. Cause we're outdoors. That's fine. But if I'm in a big gym, now I'm a, now I'm. Now I have to sit in the stands of the bat. So 
I don't yeah. know. And I'm look, I'm vaccinated. I'm I'm pro safety, all that stuff. But I just feels like it, it feels like we have no coach. I agree. Right. It's like America needs a coach. We need we need Gene Hackman and Hoosiers. We need I know we need Bill Belichick. We need somebody who can just be our coach right now. Well, let me ask you this, because I think that was supposed to be Fauci. But how did he get so politicized? Like I and I saw that happening in front of me and I'm like, how does why is this happening? It's, you, you know, it's part of the era. I mean, the real the real thing is if we just got rid of Twitter, everything would be a lot better. But mm-hmm. it, with Twitter now, you can just go back and you can throw something in somebody's face. And with Fauci, they just went back to 60 years of stuff and whatever they could find, throw it against them. And then all of a sudden there was like a PETA thing and mm-hmm. um, and it was just undermined, undermined, undermined. I mean, he didn't have a great first month if you look back when the pandemic actually happened. It, right, some stuff You can pull little sound bites out left and right and... It's not awesome for him, but at the same time, like I, I, I would like to think he cares about the welfare of human beings. <laughs> I think he and does that he's, that he's educated, yes. right? Right. But people would say that he's acting like God, but then would make his words like God, like they had to be gospel. The things that he said, so they would make him accountable for having gospel but then making fun of him for acting like God, they would say. Like, well, he said this. He said that masks weren't important, so how come all of a sudden they are? Because the motherfucker changed his mind. You know? Right. Also, we yeah. had more, we got more intelligence. We More research came in. We learned things. It's okay to, you know, it's that much different than sports, right? Yeah. People thought the Patriots were going to suck. Mac Jones turned out to be the son of Jesus, and now the Patriots are good. <laughs> the son of Jesus. You can change, people can change their opinion. I didn't. I thought they were going to be good right away. There are no luckier fans than Patriots fans, as far as I'm concerned. Well, we, ha- we have the best coach in the history of sports. It's been great. I don't know if he's the best in the history of sports, but I got to give Belichick credit where credit is due. I mean, he knows what he's figured something out when it comes to winning championships, that's for sure. I wish uh, I wish we had a Belichick for the country. Is that possible? Is that possible, do you think? Probably not. I, you know, I was thinking we did uh, rewatchables about JFK this week, so I was like on a JFK deep dive. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and then that. you think about like what the reasons Oliver Stone made that movie, right? He was just so upset that Jay, as a kid, it was the most traumatic thing that happened to him. And right. he really honestly believed if JFK lives, we don't go into Vietnam. Now Oliver Stone goes to Vietnam, his life changes. So sure. it, it, like a deeply personal film for him, but also an insane film. But also not realizing that JFK would have Oh, he would have died completely Exactly. He would have stayed <laughs> in Vietnam. Yeah, that's, exactly. It's exactly. nice to say now because you have no way of proving otherwise. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you know, you think about what, what JFK meant back then, and probably it was because we had less information on everything. And completely. people could be mythologized, all that stuff. I get it. But um but yeah, we don't have anything like that now not even remotely anything like that we don't have a royal family yeah i guess we have beyonce yeah i think music is the closest yeah i think you're right it was oprah for a while but then she got a little too political probably and then uh people took sides with her yeah that was although she's better off than where ellen ended up yeah what i feel like the left went after Ellen in a really bad way. That was nasty. I think people don't like phonies, ultimately. They didn't mind her. People knew all about Ellen for years. I heard that Ellen wasn't very nice in the 90s, right. you know, from people that I worked with her. I mean, I had never worked with her, so I can't, I'm not going to say for sure, but I'm just saying what I heard. You know, I heard these stories, you know. Yeah, but sometimes you never know, right? You hear stories about somebody and then you meet them and they're awesome. Yeah, and they could have had a bad experience. But it seemed like once she 
sat next to uh, President Bush at the football game like it was all over. That's what it seemed like. And then all these like attacks started coming out where, you know, her legs started being cut out from underneath her for stuff that happened years earlier, you know, as well as contemporary. It was really interesting. It's tough when this stuff comes out about the celebrity where it's it's like the you're not allowed to make eye contact with them backstage kind of I stuff. Know, That's I know. Kind of insurmountable crazy. when like multiple people are like, yeah, you're not, you weren't allowed to look at her. You yeah. weren't allowed to interact with her in any way. And it went, once people hear that, but that person is trying to present yeah. themselves as, yeah. oh, I'm everybody's friend. I'm your friend. Like, you know, oh, that stuff never came out about Oprah, you know, it, it, as successful as she got. And I'm sure she right. had a big bullseye as it grew, but it was, yeah. I don't, never heard like bad things about Oprah. Well, she had airtight NDAs though, right? Yeah, probably. Yeah, she yeah. did. I remember she was famous for that. Those NDAs were airtight. Like, people didn't dare say anything. I think a lot of those people that are at the top, like, many of them are, many of them are kind of dictator-like, you know, and can be a little crazy. It's just that, like, in my business, in showbiz, so much of it, Bill, has was so normalized for so long. And yeah. that's why... As far as my businesses, nobody was going to tell on Ellen because there were, first of all, I felt it would have been unfair to say something about Ellen because there were a thousand guys who were worse than Ellen. And it's like, why are you picking now to pick on the woman who's who's just like these horrible guys? You know, I mean, it doesn't make sense to say that, but that's how I felt about it. Like, why are you picking on Ellen now? Look at all the guys who have been monsters. And Bill, monsters. Like, people couldn't even... uh, they wouldn't even believe you if you told true stories of the showbiz monsters that have have walked the earth. I mean, sports is definitely like that too, right? Is it? Is sports? I always felt showbiz is worse. Uh, are the sports people who are the worst in the sports people? Is it the athletes or the people like the managers or those people around them? I mean, I'm sure in wherever we are, if there's celebrity in power, people are going to act badly, right? Right? And I don't. You could even be in Bristol. I mean that the stories I have about some of the shit that went down in Bristol, you know, for ESPN. Right. It's, it's everywhere. If somebody has power and, and not a great moral compass, who knows, who knows what's going to happen. But yeah, the Hollywood's different though, because you have, I, that's probably the worst, right? Because there's a lot of money, a lot of ego, yeah. um, people willing to do anything to try to get ahead. And then people trying to take advantage of that. And it's just like a Molotov cocktail of, of a disaster. Well, and also you have, the the actor is the wild card because the actor is somebody whose job is to have their emotional life be at the forefront. You know, that's yeah. what they manipulate. And they, they could be very fragile people, but that's why they're talented. You know, it's that fragility that allows them to do that, right? But they're not always equipped with having all that. At, I mean, just because you're good at that doesn't mean you're equipped at getting all the attention that comes with it, you know? Yeah, and that's that's a big piece of this, right? Whether it really you're a musician is. or an actor or an athlete when when really good things start happening for you and you become an actual real celebrity i mean think all the great art that's just stemmed from just that that dilemma that that two three years when you're now super famous and you didn't realize your life was going to turn upside down like that i mean even isa who i think has handled it great but even think of her like she went from nobody knew who who she was yeah. other than me. People who were real comedy, <laughs> right. yeah. People who yeah. were real, co- real kind of underground comedy, or people on the internet, they knew who, she, like Rembert knew who she was, my friend Rembert. But mm-hmm. nobody really knew who she was, and all of a sudden she has a show on HBO. 
Yeah. And now you're getting recognized overnight. It's happening. You know, yeah. and that was like in the music box series. We did a documentary about Alanis Morissette. Mm-hmm. And I was, you know, mo- most of the time when you do like the music series, one of the reasons we wanted to do the series the way we did it was we were focusing on specific angles versus like beginning, middle and like sweeping 50 year career mm-hmm. retrospective. And with the Alanis thing, her story is about as crazy as it gets for music because she went from like being this broke Canadian Nobody knew she was. This was kind of her last chance. And she made this album that ended up being like the second biggest album by a female ever. It's one of the 12 biggest albums ever. Mm -hmm. And overnight, she became an A-plus lister. And as it's happening, she's going on tour. Yeah. And not even totally realizing her life has changed. But it has, because every time Mm -hmm. she steps out of a bus, there's a mob of people. All of a sudden, she's playing arenas. And this is happening when she's like 20 and 21. And then there's the backlash. And then there's the people going, oh, my God, what an angry bitch she is. Oh, my, did you hear that? You ought to know what she's so angry about. And then <laughs> right. that becomes the narrative about her for six months. She has to fend off this angry bitch narrative when she, that was one song. The album's like one of the best first albums anyone's ever made. So she's dealing with all that in 18 months and then the tour ends. And it's like, where am I now? I don't even have a house. Wow. I just sold 20 million albums and I'm an A plus lister and everybody wants to do something with me and I don't even have my own apartment. Yeah. It's fucked up when you get a lot of fame, but not a lot of money (laughs) or you don't get the, you don't get the traffic of it. And then the fame goes away and you never capitalized on it or, you know, it's kind of ephemeral like that. That's happened to a lot of people, you know, where they got a lot of attention, but they didn't, nothing came of it for them. But people think, because they were famous for a while that somehow they're rich. Like those two go together or something. Well, it's usually bands, right? Where you have that one hit album and there's five guys, they're splitting everything equally. The manager yeah. took half, the label yeah. took a, eight, and it's not nearly as much money as you think. And then the guy who wrote all the lyrics and did everything, he's pissed. He's like, why did I give that to the drummer? <laughs> right. What was I thinking? <laughs> I should know that myself. Yeah. You just never know. I, yeah. I've uh, I've always it's an angle that's always fascinated me, and I think there's yeah, been some really too. good stuff written about it, and there's been good documentaries about it. There's been good movies about it. I'm fascinated with fame. I always have been. Um, I was saying in my pod uh, last week how Houdini was the first person I was really interested in because he was so big, and I just mm. couldn't fathom like why was he so big, and I and just read every book on him and. The Beatles was that to me also. I, I went down in the 80s. I went down so many Beatles rabbit holes just to try to just get an understanding of their fame and everything. And I remember listening to the uh, Hollywood Bowl concerts and, man, listen to those people. They just won't stop screaming. It was crazy to, to relive that. I remember at the time. Have you watched the uh, Beatles doc at all? Or Yeah, I, I'm, I have a thought on that, but I wanted to follow up on yours. If you go back and you watch even wrestling from like the late seventies, early eighties or any sporting event. And you watch how the crowds react to this stuff or any concert. Yeah. It's at a different level. And I, I I always wondered like why that was. And I think part of it is there was just less to do back then. Yeah. So like when (laughs) Billy Joel came near town. Right. And you got tickets and you were there. First of all, all you did was like listen to Billy Joel on like vinyl or a track or yeah. you heard him on the radio as you were driving around. And that was it. Those are your interactions, unless he went on like Saturday Night Live. Now you're in the arena with Billy Joel. Right. And it's like, oh my God, he's right there. And he's playing those songs and people like lose their minds. Same thing like if if WWF passes through in Pittsburgh, it's like, oh my God, that's Bruno San Martino. 
And now I think because everything's so available to us at all times, like I, I don't, I just don't think people would react the same way. The, the Beatles will never happen again. If the Beatles happen now, I could consume them on YouTube and Twitter and everywhere else. Like I, it wouldn't feel as special if they were right in front of you. I don't know. I'm not sure. Like I remember when Beyonce was here, she was at the Rose Bowl in Pasadena. I mean, people are going crazy. Like Beatles crazy? Like 64 people passing out crazy? Well, there's very few Beatles yeah. crazy, you know. Uh, Michael Jackson was, I think, the last one to have that type of crazy. Where it's at I that level agree. all over the world all yeah. the time. Because that's what the people don't understand. The Beatles had that reaction, not for a couple of concerts. It was like that all the time, all over the world. Yeah, they stopped touring. Yesterday, I had Chuck Klosterman on my podcast because I was I I thought that Beatles documentary is one of the best things I'd ever seen in the last twenty five years. And I had the uh, editor. Yeah, yeah, he was great. What's funny is it, it sent me on like I've been listening to Beatles for like the last week. I made like yeah. a thirty song Spotify playlist. I drive around, the Beatles are on, and I've had this like complete revival. I think it's like the third or fourth time this has happened to me with them. You know, because you have these things where you get in these rabbit holes with music. You know, I just never expected it again, but that thing like totally reignited it for me. The Beatles are so interesting too, because I mean, you talk about the accidents of how fame happens too. You know, yeah, just. Just doing the right thing when history wants that to happen, you know, and that right. sort of thing. And, you know, when they were going around giving their tape to people, nobody was interested. In, and everybody said this, oh, please, guitar groups are out. You know, nobody wants to see a band anymore. <laughs> like, you know, like, and they were doing like old Sherelle songs and Chuck Berry and that kind of stuff. You know, no, they were doing Buddy Holly. Nobody wanted to listen to that crap. That that felt old to everybody. And in an instant, they went from seeming like they were old to seeming like they were the future in like a second. That's crazy. Timing. You could argue they might have had the best timing of any. They had amazing timing. Any musicians. And Lorne Michaels, and this isn't a criticism, but I thought Saturday Night Live was like incredible timing. Because if Completely you Completely agree. I'm like a huge junkie of that show. And yeah. this is this thing that had been building for years, this comedy, this underground comedy movement, and this incredible wave of talent and all yeah. of these different comedy groups and it just wasn't on TV in the way it was in, but you had this whole generation that was kind of ready for it. And, yeah. you know, when they did that first show, I think everybody's reaction was like in the comedy community, it was like, Oh my God, they did it. You know, yeah. they, like to get Richard Pryor to be on that show, I think it's he crazy. was on like the 10th one and to have the real Richard Pryor and some of the sketches they did, which I think mm -hmm. would make people have like a conniption if they saw a couple of the sketches now, but like, yeah, it was just, it was the most exciting thing, but the timing of it was perfect. It was right as modern TV was taken off. It tied in with a bunch yeah. of other stuff, but then all these new wave comedians. Yeah, it was the real first television show about the television generation, you know? How old were you when that show? You, you must have watched it, right? I was. Oh, yeah. It was a huge influence on me. I couldn't believe it because to me, there was nothing like it on TV. It was yeah. the, the similar event to that to me was in Living Color. When In Living mm. Color came on, hip-hop was not on television. It just wasn't. It was a movement that was happening in the culture, but it wasn't on television, you know. And uh, Arsenio was, was, had just come on, and he was bringing like, groups I was going to say, I, I kind of feel like Arsenio doesn't get enough credit for that. He does not get enough credit. He was kind of, at least for me, living on the East Coast with no exposure to anything, yeah. he was kind of my gateway to some of these yeah. 
comedians and artists that weren't on television. I wasn't going to find out about them otherwise. Thousand percent true. So Arsenio was the first one to be a fixture on television to kind of introduce that world. But it was more than hip hop with Arsenio. He had a lot of influences and stuff, but definitely yeah. that was one of them. But um, and Living Color was straight in your face hip hop culture from the clothing because Arsenio yeah. was wearing suits, you know, and that kind of stuff. But, right. you know, the Wayans Brothers, the way they dress, you know, the the sense of humor. It wasn't from a white point of view. It was from a black point of view that hadn't happened on TV. Like that to me. And I was so fortunate to be, you know, you know, in that, you know, yeah. bubble and everything. But Saturday Night Live and In Living Color, man, I was so happy. I got to see both of those cultural moments with the tide shifted. It was different after Saturday Night yeah. Live started, not the same. And different after In Living Color, not the same after that. Just not the same. You had a bunch of good stuff going on then, too. But, I, you know, I remember watching In Living Color because they had Jim Carrey on it. That was yeah. my initial, like, I love Jim Carrey. This is so stupid. But right. he, he did this Rodney Dangerfield <laughs> comedy special in, like, 86, oh, yeah. 87, 88. Sure. I remember those on HBO. And I had it on tape. And it was like he did Charles Bronson. He did Clint right. Eastwood. He did all these faces. And I had just never seen anything like it. And then he disappeared. He was in some movie with Lauren Hutton. And then he was gone. And I was always like, what happened to that guy? That guy did the best six minutes of comedy. Right. You know, other than Sam Kinison that I ever saw in that Dangerfield special. Like, where is he? So he turned up on that. And I was like, oh, cool. Jim Carrey. Yeah. And then I watched the show and I was like, oh, my God. What is this? This is like, oh, my God. And that was the, the reaction for three years with that show. Well, they tried to make Jim Carrey a star before that. Um, he was in a movie called Once Bitten. That's what I meant, the Lauren Hunt movie. Right, And he, but he was also on a TV show. Uh, and I can't remember the TV show, but it was on NBC and it flopped. I don't remember that one. I, I didn't get the Met. I didn't, when I, Jim Carrey yeah. newsletter. <laughs> yes. I didn't, then nobody told me about that one. Uh, you know, I was in that world. Then. But uh, so they thought he was done. And so Jim really just did impressions in those right. early days. And pretty much straight up impressions, but he got sick of it. And one night at the comedy store, he just kind of rebelled against himself and yeah. just started doing these bizarre, like, just take some things like he'd do a dinosaur, you know, and he'd just be coming out of the corner or whatever and do all these weird things. And that's what changed his whole career. He got so tired of just being, I think, just a straight up thing. And I don't know if it went over well at first, but eventually he just it just became his thing, you know, himself. So, I mean, the amount of talent the first couple of years on that it's show. It's crazy. It was crazy. I actually don't think they get enough credit for it. Once again. I know. I get it. Not enough credit. <laughs> but in that case, thing, it's, <laughs> it's really bad because, you know, part of the problem was Saturday Night Live was really good going head to head for a couple of years. And I thought yeah. that was like one of the show really ebbs and flows. But that was one of the times where they just had a lot of talent and there's a lot of press about kind of the SNL is back. And so in living color kind of became a little more underground, which I think really helped it in a way because then people started rebelling against like the establishment SNL Then SNL yeah. started losing a little bit. I remember when Chris switched shows, that was kind of a big, that's kind of a big thing. Chris rock. Yeah. yeah Cause yeah. it was like, Whoa, okay. Switching teams. But um, yeah, that, I mean, in general, the nineties, when you think of how we've talked before about the eighties, like how few mm -hmm. black characters, black shows were on. And then all of a sudden it really flips, you know, starting with that show and a couple others. And then you get Martin in there and fresh Prince. And yeah. You had the straight ahead show. Of course, the biggest show at the time was the Cosby show in a different world, you know? Right. But that was it. 
And you had Isaac the bartender for a couple of years. Yeah. <laughs> Back in the 70s. And George and Wheezy. <laughs> but you know what's interesting about Saturday Night Live, with the exception of Eddie Murphy, who ironically was there when Lorne Michaels was not. And right. And this is no shade against Lauren Coincidence. Michaels. Yeah, he was 19. But I felt like they never knew what to do with black performers. They just didn't. Well, they fucking had Damon Wayans. Didn't know what to do with him. He he basically quit. Like, he yeah. he sabotaged the sketch and they yeah, got rid basically. of him. Like he was I think he, he said ch- fuck or something, right? No, no, no. That's not what happened. He was playing. Like, he had some bit part with one line of Donald. He was like a waiter. Uh-huh. And he came out and he did it as like the super effeminate, completely oh, over the right, top. Right, right, right. Just had nothing to do with the sketch and just submarined it. And then they were like, yeah. all right, it's time for you to go. <laughs> it's time to get out of here. But when you think about that show, how many years did they have black cast members playing women on that show? Like forever until Keenan Thompson finally just was like, fuck this. I'm not doing mm-hmm. this anymore. Go hire yeah. some actresses. But that seems kind of nuts now when you look back at it. But, you know, that show's had a complicated history with just what the right number of cast members is right now. They have so yeah. many cast members, the opening credits three and a half minutes long. You ever, you ever watched that show this year? It's dizzying. The opening credits are three and a half minutes long. I know each person gets three minutes. It's like, just put all these on a card and let's go. This is going to be a sketch. It is interesting that a show like that can last that long and have any influence on the culture. I'm amazed that it can. Because I think Update can still have some pretty good stuff on it. I think those guys are really good. I'll tell you, though, and I have a 16-year-old or a 14-year-old, mm-hmm. Pete Davidson like really matters to young people. Really? Why, yeah. why is that? He really does. Why? Because he's he's uh, fragile? He just he hits with them. Wow. He did Last year, he did the... Uh, he did the... God, who was that with? Chalamet. They pretended to be this um, this kind of one-song rap band and and it became like it took over tiktok for like months right it was like tick tick herp herp i can't remember the song it was it was annoying <laughs> but then this year the way pete davidson when he does the okay all right okay good when he's like when he's getting yelled at or something yeah that's very funny actually when that's good that's like a thing kids do now like when we're yelling at my son and he just doesn't want to deal with us he, he's like okay all right Okay, and we're, and we're like, don't do the fucking Pete Davidson at us. Right. You're not doing that. Don't do the Pete Davidson. It's like, okay, all right, okay. It's this ultimate detached type yeah. of Yeah, uh, it's like, thing. I don't care. You can't. It's like you put this suit of armor on. But anyway, he's. I think now that he's dating Kim Kardashian, Pete's like kind of like an icon in the Gen wow. Z culture. It's pretty funny. Yeah, he's like, now he's he's boosted up into royalty now that he's got a Kardashian. Well, that think about it. I was talking about this with somebody. You'll love this. See, this is you and I are uniquely qualified to have this convo since we've oh, seen I can't a wait. few of these. She's kind of the Marilyn Monroe of right now, right? Or like Elizabeth Taylor. I'm not mad at Kim K at all. Me neither. But remember like when it was a big deal to date Elizabeth Taylor? <laughs> yeah, like, oh, Elizabeth right. Taylor. It was that seven that's years right. there. It was like, oh, she's married. She's going to marry Senator John Warner. I'm like, whoa, John Warner. <laughs> Didn't she marry a construction worker? Too, yeah, Larry Fortensky. Yeah. But Marilyn Monroe, same thing. It's like, ah, oh, Joe DiMaggio. Ah, oh, she's dating Arthur Miller. Right. And Pam Anderson had that for, I think, maybe two years, and then mm-hmm. kind of lost the luster. But I, it's been Kim for how many years now? She's had the championship wow. belt for 12 years. The championship belt. <laughs> for like over a decade, right? Wow, that is true. Why is there always this figure that people, like if you're with them, somehow that's the thing, you know? You get credibility because they deign to pick you to date. They acknowledge you. You somehow, it's like you've been anointed. 
you're you're cleared. But in the case with Pete Davidson, is he doing more for her or is she for him? Great question. He's like 14 years younger. He's relevant. Because a lot of the people you're talking about who love Pete Davidson, they don't even care about Kim Kardashian, right? Right. But I think everybody knows who she is. And I do think she's really well liked. She's probably one of the least polarizing celebrities because if you go at her, yeah. she has this whole army of people that will just come at you. So now there's like a fear factor of like being mean to her. I think she's done some good stuff out in the world too. And I I really had to give her credit for a couple of things. The you know, she did a lot of interesting things, you know, in the social justice world. But I thought the way that she handled herself when Kanye was going through a lot of the public mental illness things. Yep. And the way she kind of some of the language she used and the way she kind of showed support. She was never negative during a lot of that. I th- I was like, wow, this is how you do it. Because, you know, they were having issues and problems and stuff. But uh, uh, I thought she uh, showed a lot of um, a lot of class during that period. You know, the last film that we did is, is about Juice World for the Music Box series. And people are going to think it's a drug film and it's not. It's it's about it's 100 percent of mental illness mental mm-hmm. health film because he had a lot of issues this recent generation i think the pandemic probably has a little bit to do with it but is so much more aware of the mental health thing mm-hmm. and so much more willing to give people benefit of the doubt when they're acting radically i think it's probably easier to pick up the signs too absolutely but it's also like you look at this whole wave of hip-hop which juice was at the forefront of which is one of the things our, our film's about and you think about like what people are what a rapper would be rapping about in the mm-hmm. late eighties, early nineties versus the kind of stuff he was rapping about, which was, you know, a lot of it was freestyle and it was all about like how much pain he was in mm-hmm. and his own mortality and stuff like that. And I didn't realize that one of the reasons I wanted to do doc was because I was driving my son around and he was listening to these songs and I'm listening to lyrics and I'm like, do you even know what this stuff's about? Mm-hmm. And that my son and his friends, like, they kind of knew what it was about. They got it. Like, they, I don't think they were smart enough to really process, like, big picture stuff with it. But mm-hmm. they understood what he was singing about. Well, tell us about Music Box. Uh, how did this idea come about? And tell us exactly what you're doing. It came about, it was really started um, after I saw the documentary about the Eagles, like, in 2013. I remember that. Yeah. And I wrote a big piece about it for Grantland because I just, I loved it. And I thought, like, this mm-hmm. is the kind of music... I didn't really like most music documentaries mm-hmm. and I really liked how they did it and how kind of focused it was. And it kind of skimmed on all the extraneous stuff and what somebody was like in the second grade. And the part one of it was really focused. And, you know, I'd had the experience with 30 for 30 and doing two volumes of that. Right. I think one of the reasons that succeeded was how focused it was. And we really tried to tell 30 stories and, Instead of doing like a giant sweeping sports documentary, we were doing stuff like Reggie Miller versus the Knicks and things yeah. that were contained. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So around like 2017, 18, I kept thinking about music docs and music docs. And then mm-hmm. a, a friend of mine that I met who I became friends with who works for a Universal Music Group, we were talking and he was saying how people always come in and pitch 30, 30 for music for us and just kind of laughing because mm-hmm. people don't understand how hard it is to create a series and you don't just snap your fingers and be like, Hey, I've got this idea. It's 30 for 30 for music. Like there's so right. much more that goes into it. So we were kind of laughing about that. And I was like, I have this whole document of ideas. I, I actually have an idea for this. And he's like, we should figure it out. It took three and a half years. <laughs> it was 
I mean, the first two we wanted to do fell through. And unlike sports, you're dealing with labels and musicians and artists. And um, there's so many different ways it can go wrong. And rights. I mean, if you're going to play music, right? Rights, licenses, um, Mm -hmm. publishing stuff where multiple people in the publishing. So we kind of, we, the thing that we really cared about was, can we borrow some of that 30 for 30 DNA about like working with filmmakers we like who are good, mm-hmm. um, who have some sort of vision and either it's our idea or their idea. It doesn't really matter. We are trying to meet with people. And sometimes we had the idea. Sometimes they came like the, uh, Kenny G doc that we ran last night, which just got named one of the best films by, uh, the New Yorker. Oh, that wow. was her idea. We brought her in to talk about another idea. And she's like, no, I actually have this Kenny G idea. And she sent mm-hmm. this incredible pitch, Penny Lane. And it was just clearly, wow, I want to go tell that story. That's good. So we try to gravitate to stories. And Mm -hmm. the fact that each one is done by a different filmmaker, I think, is a real advantage because it feels a little, you know, and then trying to figure out instead of like the big sweeping beginning, middle, end, like what is the focus of each one? So the Atlantis one I described before, the Kenny G one is about this guy's been one of the most successful musicians the last 40 years. And most people love him. And then there's this undercurrent of people who are like, fuck this guy. <laughs> and and he's aware of it. So we initially called it Kenny G as the last laugh. Kenny, yeah. Because he gets it. And he's yeah. like, it's cool. I've been really successful. I've made a lot of money and right. some people don't like it. That's fine. I'm good with it. So that was what her film was about. So each one we tried to target. The Juice one was the hardest because yeah. that one came together last. And we just... We had 10,000 hours of footage that our director, Tommy Oliver, had to go through and try to craft the story out of. How long is each uh, one, approximately? Each one, we, we're making real movies. So each one's at least, oh. you know, 85 minutes. So the one next week you'll dig because uh, it's done by this guy, John Maggio, who's fantastic, who I just, when we started this project, he was the one person I really wanted to work with because I just like the stuff he does. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's about how Saturday Night Fever came to be. Oh, wow. And it's really about the guy who put it together, this guy, Robert Stigwood, who is this visionary genius music producer who just kind of saw the chessboard differently. And all the things that he saw are things that we now take for granted. So I don't want to spoil it too much, but um, it's just about somebody who's just smarter than everybody else and leads to this iconic movie that, you know, created a blueprint for a whole bunch of different things. Movie soundtracks, taking a TV star, making them a movie star, um, going into a world, buying a magazine piece and as like a piece of IP for a movie. It does yeah. all these things that nobody had just put together before. So that's what next week's about. I love those types of things. Um, American Graffiti was that type of thing where George Lucas really almost wrote that movie around the music as opposed to putting the music right. in, you know, into the scenes. He he mentioned that, you know, the, that the music in that movie was such a part of his life at that time. And uh, he just said, I want this song here. I want this song there. I want this song in this part of the movie. I think Paul Thomas Anderson did that with a couple of his movies too, where he just yeah. kind of knows as he's writing the scene, what song should be playing. What the soundtrack is. Yeah, I'm not musical at all, but I love music. But like even watching the Beatles hash out their stuff. Yeah. I was so fascinated by Paul playing the riffs first. Yeah. And not caring what the lyrics were yet. And just trying to get like, 
he's at the piano and he's playing Let It Be and he he knows he has the hook and he knows he has the Let It Be, but he doesn't know anything else. Right. right. And he just kind of keeps going and going and going. And same thing with Get Back when he's like, yeah. he's he's got JoJo and then all the iterations of it. I thought <laughs> I just couldn't get enough of that. Yeah, it was so interesting. But for me, as a as a writer, you know, like to me, that's the most familiar part. Like I'm like, yeah, right. that's how that's how creativity works. That's how you write. You know, when I'm yeah. thinking of of jokes and scripts, how many versions of things you go through. You know. Oh my god! I mean, I, was, I had the same thing for my columns. Like, yeah, that's like the secret sauce of getting better at a writer. Is yeah, you write the first draft and. I would I would hand in documents where it'd be like, you know, let's say I named my column like Wilmore mm-hmm. and I'd be like, Wilmore one would be the first draft. And the, right. the, the document I would actually send in would be like Wilmore nine. Yeah. You know, I'd, I'd really try to figure out over and over again uh, mm-hmm. that that could go I get rid of that. I should add something there. Oh, that needs a joke. Yeah. And it's not much different than music, honestly. Yeah. For me, it's in my creative process. Is interesting. I do a lot of editing in my head. Yeah. Like I do a lot of that stuff. So by the time it comes out, it's almost fully formed, you know, and just right. requ- it requires like the the polishing of the edges then, you know, but the thing itself, like when I wrote a book and it was, uh, this was so painful. The book was the so-called collection of material that I had over the years. It was Larry Wilmore's black thoughts was what it was. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, of course, I had to make it up. I didn't have this collection like like it was transcripts from a radio show that supposedly I appeared on, you know, and essays that I wrote for newspapers and things like that and interviews I did with people. So I had to come up with all these things. And some were just like one off things like crazy ideas, like uh, text messages from a Birmingham jail was one of them and something like that. So it's just crazy ideas. But like I had to form the pieces almost fully in my head before I could actually write it. Like Interesting. I had to. It was. It's very bizarre. It's hard to explain. I didn't know what the actual. No, words. I, I, I totally get what you mean. I would do it either way. I would have sometimes it would be in my head. Other times, I would just like have a general idea, but just let my fingers go. And sometimes I didn't know it was going to happen. Exactly. Which is like that's the scarier one that I used right. to find thrilling, and then as you hit your forties, you just find it terrifying. <laughs> I remember I wrote one. It was called Bring Back the Shetland Negro. And what that one was about, it was supposedly this essay I wrote where I claimed that America was at its happiest when Gary Coleman and Webster were on TV, who I called the Shetland Negroes because they only grew to a certain uh, height. And and that that's when America was happiest. And that idea just popped in my head. head. I didn't know how I was going to write that essay, but I knew that that, you know, it made me laugh. And so... Once I formed that, then I had to, I'm like, okay, where am I going with this? And what's the idea, you know, and you start framing like, okay, how do, okay, that joke I got to save for later on. So I got to fill this into there. And it's a real fun process of like figuring those things out. And then you just, then it just like pours out of you as you're writing it at at the typewriter or the computer or whatever. Yeah, I would have, sometimes I would write out pieces of things. Yeah. And I would knew like I'd be like at some point this will be relevant. I remember one time I was doing TV the second year I was on Countdown with Doug Collins, who I really liked, and he would tell a lot of stories and we would talk a lot about basketball. And he was like this big emotional big picture guy. And one day we were talking about genius and about the concept of genius and mm-hmm. could basketball players be a genius? Because he was like Jordan was a genius, and I had spent time with Bill Russell like probably like a year or two years before. And Bill Russell could still remember the sequences of plays and games that he had been in 
like 60 years earlier. That's crazy. And so it's like, that has to be some form of genius. Bird was the same way. Bird, you could just bring yeah. a game to him. And I think Magic was the same way too. And I had spent time with Magic the year before, and Magic just had the recall, and he's just clearly a genius. Right. So we, we were talking about, is LeBron a genius? And my instinct was yes, because of how high his hoops IQ was and the things he saw and how he could move around. But he was so physically overpowering, it's like, all right, is he a genius, but he's also like the biggest freak athlete we have in the league. Like, that's kind of mm. crazy. So Doug was like, he is a genius. So anyway, I wrote this whole thing out and I was like, it wasn't quite a calm. I didn't know what it was, but I had this whole piece of it. And then LeBron that summer, he went back to the Cavs. And I was like, I got to write something about that. Genius and move. I was like, now I can do the genius thing because this is actually part of his genius. He knew that that Miami team was done. He knew he shouldn't stay with Wade and Bosch. He knew the titles were not there anymore. He actually knew the genius part of it was like, he made it seem like I need to always want to go back to Cleveland. Mm -hmm. He went back to Cleveland and win titles. And that, yeah, the fairytale story of bringing the Cavs a title, all that stuff. But he was going back because that was the best basketball move. They had the number one pick in the draft. They had Kyrie Irving. They had uh, Tristan Thompson and Deion Waiters. And they had an owner that was willing to spend money. It was a better situation than staying in Miami and that he saw that because he was so smart. So my ultimate decision was, yeah, that guy's a genius and he is. That almost seems like a genius at GMing rather than at being an athlete. You know, that's that feels a little different to me, you know. No, but I meant like he's a genius in that you wouldn't have guessed at the time. Of having vision for for where he needs to we be. We wouldn't have known that that Miami team was done done yet. I mean, you could have guessed. Never would have guessed it. they were the favorites in that finals. And the consensus was like, well, if they keep Wade and Bosch together and they just add some stuff, it'll be fine. But he smelled something. He smelled like a scent from that situation. He's mm -hmm. like, I'm out. I'm not, I can't win titles. Or I need to win more titles. I got to catch Jordan. I, I only have two. I got to get out. I'm not going to win another one here. And he saw that. Nobody else saw it. What do you think makes a genius athlete as opposed to somebody who's just really talented? Like, what makes them a genius? It's a good question because, like, I don't feel like Giannis is a genius yet because I, th I think he's figured out how to maximize his athletic gifts. So you cannot start out as a genius and then you can become a genius, do you think? I think it's possible. Really? But I think it has to be in you in some way. Mm -hmm. I think LeBron was always the best at basketball from age what 10 right mm -hmm. and it couldn't have just been the athletic gifts there was something about how he used his teammates and how he understood sequences of games and yeah. the strategy of it that was just different and he always had it he had it when he came into the league as a rookie you know and bird i i was there for bird's rookie year because that we had the tickets so it was got i mean it was just completely different he was clearly he saw things that other people couldn't see and i think lebron has a lot of a lot of natural gifts obviously but his sense of like when a game is going sideways or when to insert himself in a game how to read the situations and things like that like mm -hmm. he's probably he he still is the best at that yeah like he's the smartest guy in the league other than may maybe chris paul it's like one one a one b but he doesn't have the same physical gifts anymore it is interesting because when i think of magic who's my favorite player you know you have larry bird Magic was clearly a genius from the beginning. Like from the beginning, he got from the it beginning. From day you one. saw it. In, you saw it in yeah. college. You know, like uh, he just saw the court in a way nobody on the court saw, it, with the possible exception of your boy. You know, yeah, they were they're tied. It really made them stand out. You know, in but such he also a way. understood. He understood personality and chemistry. Like 
Right. He under, he went to the Lakers and he understood I have to win over Kareem. I have to win over my moody center. Also that he had to let Kareem be the cap. He even yeah. called him cap. All he did all he did was suck up to him. He didn't care about pay him homage. Yeah, this is my guy. He's Cap. You never heard those stories about oh, you know, Magic doesn't want to be Batman and Robin. He wants to be Batman, Batman. Never. Magic Magic wanted to win. He didn't care about any of that stuff. But that was in really in the mid '80s. One of the reasons it probably took an extra year for Magic to take the car keys because he had so much respect for Kareem. Oh, for sure. And they lose in '86. Kareem's getting old now. Yeah. The Rockets demolish them. And Magic honestly wasn't assertive enough. And you look at the difference of him in 86 versus 87 when they won again. And now he's like, now I'm 25 a game. The ball's in my hands at the end of games. I have to score more. Everything has to run through me. And Kareem is a supporting guy. But that's a really hard thing to admit, you know? Yeah, but that was Pat Riley. Pat Riley took him aside. And told yeah, him he, 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 he told him to they had to be that way, yeah. That was the other thing. Magic listened to his coach. <laughs> right. Well, it, it, that that ended around 89-90, I think. <laughs> yes, exactly. Riley had one last year there where those guys were all like, hey, we're we're good with this. It's yeah. time for you to go. We're, we're You have no speech left that can inspire us. I'm going to separate something now. I think uh, I was trying to think in my head, like if I ever thought of LeBron as a genius and the way you were talking about it, I go, yeah, I guess you could say that. I guess in some ways he is, but there is a different type of animal that exists too. And there's the genius, let's say, and then there's, let's say, the artist, which may not necessarily be the genius, but like Steph Curry to me is the artist. You know, I agree. I don't know if I would call him the genius. I wouldn't either. But he's certainly the artist. Like Tiger Woods is both. He's both genius and artist, you know. Well, wouldn't you, right? You could say like almost like performer. Well, what I mean, and what I mean by that is like, not only is his methodology have a certain type of higher level to it of what he's doing but his way of doing it has a certain style to it that is pleasing to the eye (laughs) you know that that's the artistic part and like when tiger won the um i think it was the british open and he never used a driver he just used an iron the whole time i think it was 2006 It, it was like you were watching a picasso being painted right in front of you that's what it felt like to yeah it was the most amazing thing I had ever seen in terms of a sports thing. Um, just being painted right in front of you, you know, and it was more than just the way he would overpower a course, which was brute force. And there was genius behind that and everything. But this was, it was like just painting, you know, just, I'm going to, there's a brush there. There's a there, there. Let's do a little bit of that. And there you go. Thank you very much. <laughs> well, I actually think Steph is a better performer than LeBron. And I think it annoys LeBron. <laughs> See, that's your Laker, that's your Laker hatred coming out when you say it annoys LeBron. Listen, Jordan, and we were both there. Jordan was an artist and a genius for sure. There was a charisma to him that for you sure. kind of had to be in the room with. He would come out for the pregame warmups, and the whole stadium would stop. Crazy. Curry comes out for the pregame warmups. Half the place is already full. Everybody's watching him shoot threes, and he knows all the eyes are on him yeah. the whole time. Now, not that LeBron doesn't, but it's like a performer. It's yeah. no different than watching like a musician on stage like mess around with his guitar while knowing. Right. Um, and LeBron has that, but not the same way Curry not does. Not the same think. way. LeBron has it while he's uh, like when he dunks on somebody or makes a dramatic shot that counts. But Curry can make a shot in the first quarter. You know, <laughs> that's from. 45 feet and it has that kind of reaction it's crazy you know kobe didn't have it initially 
Yeah. But I think he must have read a hundred manuals and studied all the other people that he had, had it inside by, of him. He had it inside by the mid two thousands. He had it because I remember that season when he averaged thirty seven a game and or thirty five a game, and they almost beat the Suns. Like all of a sudden, he it looked like he was kind of Jordan two point That just the way he was carrying himself. Yeah. It's like oh. Something's different about him. It was I never felt that way about him in the early 2000s. Kobe had two performances that I've never seen any basketball player have. One was the 81-point uh, performance. That was crazy because right. a lot of those were three-point shots, too, and just and shots from all kinds of places. It was nuts. And it was a come-from-behind victory. Yeah. The other was his last performance, Bill, 60 points. And he, he could barely walk. People don't realize right. Kobe was so hurt. During yeah. that time, he almost didn't play. Uh, Byron Scott, I think Scott was the coach at the time, but uh, I remember there were a couple of games before he couldn't play, like his knees were shot and everything. Kobe played with everything hurting. You know, he just didn't care. And he just barely, barely made it onto the court for that game and dropped 60. Well, that's kind of the last stage, right? And granted, there are no stakes in that Kobe game. Except his legacy. Well, yeah. I mean, he wanted to have a good last game. Right. But there wasn't any like real competitive. Yeah, it wasn't a championship. Right. Bird, the last two years, when his back was done, he's wearing a back brace. It was like some of my favorite Bird games because he was really limited, you know? And I yeah. think Russell was the same way in 69, though, when he won the last title, when he just physically couldn't do it the same way anymore, but he just kind of gutted it out. I think that's why people love Tiger, uh, that master's performance. Yeah. When, when somebody can figure out how to do it when they don't have the same kind of gifts, that's kind of the last level. And guess guess who hasn't had to deal with that yet? LeBron, because he still has the gifts. But he's, he's gonna have it's to. kind of the last piece, right? Yeah, when it's on its way. You're washed up or you have like you're you know, you're missing your MCL and your right knee now, or yeah. you're coming off some surgery and now you're kind of doing on memory and stuff like that. He hasn't had to deal with them yet because he's just been incredibly healthy. And partly because he's indestructible and partly because of how much time and money he spends on his body. Nobody has ever, other than Carl Malone, and I think he's even past Carl Malone, like he just cares the most about his body and it's paid off. He's 19 years now. I never got a chance to talk to you about that whole Scottie Pippen thing. What do you think was up with that? Um, because to me, it feels like a little bit of revisionist history of some of the stuff Scotty is saying. Because we would have seen glimpses of that type of uh of that relationship i don't think he had a relationship like that with jordan i think he's making a lot of that up i think he's by making it up i mean i think they were good during that time he and jordan like if jordan was was close with anybody which you could argue maybe he wasn't close to anybody but if anybody was his boy it was scotty during that time you know i went to some of those games i you know i was reading some of the lennon stuff from the 70s after the Beatles broke up. Right, and right, right. He's really vicious with McCartney. Yeah, he was for a while. Like, right. he had a couple of interviews. There's a Playboy interview with him in, like, 1980 where he's just vicious with some of the stuff he says about McCartney, and it's it reminded me a little of the Pippin thing. I think when the years pass and you get away with somebody, you can make up whatever narrative you want. You can hold on to whatever, but I went to those games. Those guys loved each other. Yeah. Watching them in person together was one of the biggest thrills I've ever had as a sports fan. I was a Boston fan. Yeah. But they came in a couple times and kicked the shit out of us. Right. And I had never seen even Bird, Mikhail Parrish. Like I'd never seen two guys on the same page like Jordan and Pippen were after the baseball, where it was just, it was like Jordan had cloned himself as Pippen. Yeah. And they were just these 
too freaking honestly there was nothing like it the way they kind of patrolled the court yeah and they were so much better athletically than everybody and it felt like anytime they wanted to get a steal they would just go after the point guard and take the ball from him yeah um i just i i just don't see it i think he was really bitter about the last dance yeah something happened i think he felt like he didn't get paid from it that maybe they misrepresented what it was about i don't don't know yeah but i think he was really bummed out about that i think he was bummed out they spent so much time on you know, him not going back into the game, that that was such a big mm-hmm. narrative thing when it was really supposed to be at the 98 season. And, you know, Steve Kerr told me this years ago. Steve Kerr said Scotty was the best teammate he ever had. Wow. And he played for 16 years. He was like, we all love Scotty. Scotty was an amazing teammate. He's the best teammate I ever had. And I think he said that publicly too. So I think it feels like something broken, Scotty, with that. I think the feelings he had towards the organization has come out against the players. Is is what I'm interpreting. Well, he got he made so little money compared to what he should have because he had got some of the worst advice of all time. And it was a shitty organization, Chicago Bulls. That owner, I I never liked that owner. Reinsdorf. Yeah, I didn't like them. I used to go after them on TV because they were doing some stuff during the early 2010s. Right. You know, they traded somebody to say, I think it was Lou Aldan. They just got rid of him just to save money. And they had a chance to be like a four or five seed. But it was like, you guys are cheap. Like, no, we're not. It's like, all right. Yeah. You think what you think. But when you're in a top three market, you can kind of do whatever you want. Right. Before we go, I wanted to ask you about this whole COVID thing in the NBA now. Like mm. the whole Kyrie Irving thing, for the life of me, I don't understand why they couldn't work something out. Because in football, unvaccinated players can play football, you know. Like, I don't know why they couldn't work something out with Kyrie Irving where he could play some kind of way. I just don't get that. I mean, I, I'm not going to go against, fine, if he doesn't want to get vaccinated, we already know that argument, whatever, you know. Yeah. But I think there are players in sports that haven't been vaccinated. Like the whole Aaron Rodgers thing, he lied about it, but he would have still been able to play. There's just like protocols for it, you know. Well, part of it had to do with the, st- with the state of New York mm-hmm. that if he wasn't vaccinated, he couldn't be in it. Like there were actual rules that people thought were going to maybe go away in January. So I think the Nets are playing the long game, assuming that by January he can come back. I don't think they wanted him as a distraction that played sometimes, mm-hmm. didn't play other times. There's also real questions about whether he wants to play. Why, why do you think that would be the case? I don't know. It's some people, some of these celebrities are a little goofy, right? Yeah. <laughs> and, Sometimes it's easier to take some stance versus like just to put in the work and be out there four days a week. And I, I feel the same way about Ben Simmons. Like I was going to ask. It's a similar situation, but for different reasons. Here's someone not playing. He doesn't want. He doesn't want to play because he he doesn't want the reception from the Philly crowd. Like honestly, that's what it is. Like because it went so badly in the playoffs, he wanted to get traded. It backfired, and he doesn't want to face the music now. You mm-hmm. know, and this is what he does for a living. It's pretty weird. It is bizarre. It's very but the strange. thing is, the pandemic, like people are handling stuff weird all over the place. You know, we're seeing like more and more the unemployment, not unemployment, but people just leaving jobs is the highest yeah. it's ever been. Where people are just like, I'm out. I don't feel like working anymore. Yeah. And in general, like it's just not a normal way to spend 21 months. Human beings need to see each other's faces. I think so. You know, sports has been able to bring people together again in large groups, but other areas, not like I don't know if people are going to be rushing back to the movies anytime soon. It doesn't feel like it. I don't think so it's either. It's interesting to me. I think the movies are going to have a rough time because it's so easy. How about to- sports? 
Sport, I, like sports, like you look at some of these NBA and NHL, and I don't know, it doesn't seem like it's the same crowds. And you go online and look at secondary markets, the yeah. tickets are way down. Yeah, like college uh, here in Southern California, as you are here too, it's been bad. UCLA was just at the Rose Bowl, nobody was there. You know, I think they're playing count. That's crazy. I don't know. It's in general, like we all kind of got lazy and used to being home. <laughs> I know, in our pajamas. I've given away or sold every Clippers ticket we've had this year, every Clipper game. Wow. It's like, you're like, all right, so it'll take me 20 minutes to get there. I got I to gotta wear jeans and a belt. I don't mm-hmm. want to do that. 20 minutes to get there. I got to park. I got to wait in, I gotta wait in the vaccination line for a half hour to get oh, in. I got to wear God. a mask. Right. Um, then I watch the game. I'll take me. That's like a five-hour thing. I'd like rather stay here in my jogging pants. Yeah, and just watch them. Yeah. It's tough. I I think it's semi-dangerous for the attendance thing. The, the leagues don't care because it makes so much money for TV. I mean, From TV. You right. didn't even mention this. Like, football's never been more popular. Yeah. Remember when we football we were having funerals, including myself. I must have wrote three, four pieces about it. Yeah. And now football, they had the Thanksgiving game was the biggest rating they had in since nineteen ninety. What what brought it back? People miss being normal, and football makes them feel normal for a Sunday. Yeah. That's what it, to, to to me it's that. Yeah. It's fantasy football makes them feel normal. Gambling, I think the gambling explosion is part of it. Right. Having Sundays where it's like, well, I'm at home all day anyway. At least I can watch football all day. You know, all the stuff, Kaepernick, concussions, Roger Goodell being a dick. Right, right. Nobody cares anymore. Well, be, right? well basketball kind of took the whole social justice thing from them, you know. And uh, football's like, fight. Football's like, please, take it. We go. <laughs> run. <laughs> and racism. We agree. Go for it. <laughs> you want China, too? Yeah, take that. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah, football. Basketball is a godsend for football. Yeah. Now people, the national anthem goes at the football game. People are standing and crying. Oh, I missed you, national anthem. Thank God. Yeah. Well, football, they just made it clear. This is our brand. Yeah. Take it or leave it. This is who we are. Yeah. And we're going to have breast cancer awareness month, and we're going to pay salute to the military, and we're going to do That's things to do. pretend yeah. we care about other human beings. Make, you know a, we wish, don't. make a wish foundation, yeah. all that kind of you stuff. You know yeah. we don't actually care. Yeah. We know we don't care. <laughs> it's all about money. But it's a good show. Come on, everybody. Yeah, but, it's, but we're going to pretend. Basketball, I think, is having a little bit of an identity crisis because it's such a player-friendly league. Yeah. Player empowerment. We want to listen to our players. We want to hear our players. And now... At some point now, now you wonder like, maybe you need somebody to come in and be like, "Hey, our players should play when they're in their contract." Yeah, I think the Ben Simmons thing thing is ridiculous. To be honest with you, like, no player should be able to just do that. You know, well, it's insulting to his teammates too. It I mean, really can you imagine is. if you were in living color, if like Tommy Davidson's like, "I'm out." Well, see, you can't use Showbiz as an example because. <laughs> All the bad things happening. Job is yeah, that, you're right. That you All can't right, bad explain. example. Because you say that, and I go, well, I got five things for you that would be that example. I had a question for you. Yes, sir. Because you're at the forefront of a lot of this stuff, and you, you did so many good things to help diversify programming on networks. And now there's been such a dramatic push the last couple of years, and we're seeing all of these people of color creating all of these different things. Mm-hmm. And it's like this... It's like now, like almost like a generation. Right. You know, like we'll look back and we'll think like 2019, 2021, where it's just this sea change of, of content mm-hmm. that's really interesting and different and people funding it in all these different ways. And now 
um it's just a really cool time and i just yeah. like you you were there from the beginning but it, you you must feel like a proud dad watching it right oh i just had this conversation recently with some people because I had to bust those doors open and, yeah, you know, and I'd say I would open the door and then tell everybody to run in, you know, and that type of thing. Uh, and I did it on purpose because I knew at the time how limited those opportunities were, you know, like so 20 years ago when I was doing the Bernie Mac show, single camera show, there weren't many on the air, but I was hiring black female directors to direct single camera comedies like nobody was doing that. You, if you're right. a black female, you couldn't get hired as a director in single camera comedy. Go fuck yourself. Who do you think you are? You're not a white man. You know, what makes you think you can do this type of thing? You know, and now it's like no big deal. You know, that that type of thing, you know, um, that people can can just operate in the business in different ways and in different forms without needing uh, gatekeeper permission, you know, which I think is fantastic. There's so many great parts for diverse actors now and you and i was thinking like if it's a little like sports where you think like viola davis yeah like 32 year old viola davis if she time machined and went yeah. in here now would be yeah. like one of the most powerful oh. people in hollywood oh, and man. back then she like couldn't even you know find maybe one good role in three years she's in like she's in like black hat playing an fbi agent yeah you know and now she would be like people would be lining up to it's oh, just crazy. i think it's so crazy how things have flip in a good way the last three years yeah and i've seen it go come in waves so i've always been skeptical about it when you know when we talked about in living color a lot of things were going on with black content at the time and then it yeah and then we got kind of pushed off the networks i called it an ethnic cleansing was happening at the time and uh you know all the black shows suddenly had to be in upn and the cw you know and we weren't on the networks this was right before i did burning and did that show it was like there was nothing, nothing going on. It was terrible, and they only thought that black shows could be programmed with other black shows. Like you couldn't, like blocks. Yeah, it yeah. Was, I always called it nigga night. You know, it's like why do you, why is why does it all have to be one thing? I said that in the press actually, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I mean I was I was so mad at the time, Bill. It was so funny. It's probably why I got, eventually got fired from the Bernie Mac show, but whatever. But. uh the thinking, it was the thinking that I couldn't take. I would be doing press for my show, and they would say, Larry, do you have any, how many black writers do you have in your show? And I said, motherfucker, ask Frazier and ask friends how many black writers they have. How dare you ask me? I'm the one that's hiring the people. What right. Are you, what are you talking about? You know, like almost as a, oh, what are you doing to diversify? Nigga, are you serious? Are you asking me that question? Well, I think... HBO has been on it really for the last few years. I think Casey Boys, that was something yeah. he really cared about for the last 10 years. When I mean, we did Insecure, was... there was nothing like it, though. You know, right. And so when I was doing that with Issa, it was important for us to have a show like that on HBO because there wasn't anything like it in, in premium uh, cable. Yeah, it's funny because I was I read Jim Miller's book about HBO, The Oral History, and HBO, you know this in the back of your head, but until you see it all laid out, you don't think of all the ways they kind of we're not just cutting edge, but really push stuff along. Yeah. And, you know, reading about the history of just like how they kept the wire on for two extra years. Yeah. And there's really no reason they should have, it didn't do that well for them. And yeah. it didn't, it, it had critical buzz, but not really, it didn't win any awards until the last year. Always under the wire, so to speak. Yeah. Literally, mm -hmm. but it had this huge underground thing. It was also hard to catch up on. I think, yeah. I, I think the mechanism 
that was in place to catch up on shows didn't really exist till the mid two thousands, and that's what really helped it heading into season five, I think. But just the fact that they even stuck with a show like that for two extra years, I think everybody else gets rid of it. So at least HBO, I'm sure there's been a lot of stuff they screwed up too. But I think, I think they've. They've they've done some pretty good work on that. I give them credit for having really done great television and really knowing what their version of great television was at any right. at any place in time and putting that and standing behind it. I give them complete credit for that. And and back in talent, yes, and always absolutely. always like thinking talent, 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 which I think goes back to the branding thing. Yeah. They always knew what their brand was. Their brand was like we we support talented people. And and we want it to be an HBO show. Like both of those are true. So you could be talented and come there and not get on. And the reason why, not because it wasn't any good, they just felt it wasn't HBO. Like yeah. <laughs> and it wasn't an easy thing for you know creators to get because it's like, wait, didn't Spielberg have something happen didn't get? Not HBO. You know, it's like, so it doesn't matter how big you are or you could be a complete unknown. Oh, that's HBO. Thank you very much. <laughs> you know, you're on, you know. Yeah, it's funny when you see shows on other places that seem like they just should have been an HBO show. Yeah. Like, I always thought The Affair yeah. was like the perfect that HBO show. I, I think, can't right? believe, yeah, it was yeah. Showtime, but I can't believe that wasn't on HBO. I think Homeland would have been a good HBO oh, show, Oh, Homeland too. was awesome. Like, Showtime yeah. was kind of doing HBO there for a couple of years, so then HBO grabbed their cornerback. The first season of Homeland before it got crazy. <laughs> that was HBO. Yeah, you know, <laughs> it's a really good TV what if. They should have just killed Brody at the end of season one. Yeah, and, but then it got good again the last couple of seasons, Eventually. Actually. Yeah. It took a while. But that was the classic, like, well, what if we don't kill him? Yeah. It's like, okay, (laughs) so what's going to happen in season two? We'll we'll figure it out. These crazy things. That's where network executives gone wrong. Hey, what if you don't kill Brody? Oh, man. All right. You guess what? We should have killed Brody. Bill, what else is coming up? Anything else coming up uh, you want us to talk about before we let you go here? Uh, my old pal Bill Simmons here at the Ring, you guys. The Rewatchables is always a lot of fun. Yeah, the Rewatchables has been really. We had a really fun year. We've done some good stuff. The JFK was definitely a highlight because we were able to talk about the conspiracy. I bet that, that was stuff. fun. Yeah, 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 yeah. We got two more Music Box documentary series uh, coming th- next Thursday, and then Juice World on December sixteenth, and then uh, you know basketball and football. Man, keeping my fingers crossed about the Pats. Super Bowl's in LA. Well, who's going to be in the Super Bowl? Are your Pats going to make it? I picked them before the year, and everybody really? thought I was a lunatic. Yeah, I did. I picked Pats Bucks, and I really believed it. I wasn't like doing it as a stunt. I thought we had. A, I really thought we had like a special team potentially. Pats Bucks could be the Super Bowl. I don't trust the Cowboys. My Rams are. Driving, I don't either. My Rams are driving me. Now nah, they're freaking crazy. Send, send them packing. I don't know what's going on. I think it's Packers Bucks, Pats Chiefs. That will be the final four. I think the Chiefs will somehow be there and we'll be like, I can't believe the Chiefs got their shit together, but mm. they're going to get their shit together. There's no second good AFC team. De- Tennessee's too hurt. I think Ravens going to take out the Chiefs. I think, uh, what's his name, is tired of losing. I don't see it with the Ravens. I The pass defense, they've had a lot of injuries. They pulled some wins out of their butts yeah. like with re- in really dumb ways. You only that- got to do that a few times in the playoffs. No, I, I get it. I just feel like... I, I'm not afraid of them. Buffalo is the wild card, but we'll see on Monday night because I think the Pats can handle Buffalo. Yeah. But if Buffalo like kicks New England's ass on Monday, then everybody's like, Buffalo, here they come. What about those Cardinals, man? The Cardinals are legit. I know, but we don't. Their best player we haven't seen in a month. I, I'm not going to like. And they're still winning. But yeah, well, th- it's going to be cool to have it in LA. I saw Kyler uh, 
uh, beat us, the Rams. Um, and let me tell you, in person, yeah, he's ridiculous. He's oh like man, a, like you don't oh you don't get to see this on television. In person, you see all the seams, like all the ways he uses space to just fuck you up, you know. And he's a you talk about a genius the way he does it. Like he knows exactly exactly when to do a feint and when to keep you back just a little bit. And all he needs is a little bit of daylight to get that ball in there. He really is an amazing player. Yeah, he is. I the question is, can he stay in the field? He's tiny, you know, and and football is a game played by large violent people. It is. All right, NBA, last last one. Who's gonna do it? Who's gonna do it? Warriors? Because Clay isn't even back and they're doing pretty good. I still I think the Suns are a good team. Me too. I had my my preseason pick was Milwaukee Phoenix. I feel good about it. I'm gonna stick with it. Golden State, though, the X factor is they have a trade to make. I don't like Brooklyn. Brooklyn, there's like a karma stink on them now. I agree. It's going to be tough to wipe off. Just the way the whole thing was set up. They got the coach fired right away. Too cynical. They did themselves in. And you got to pull that off the first year. Otherwise, the karma gods are like, nope, sorry. (laughs) Too late. (laughs) It's year three for them. Yep. Karma gods are like, sorry, too late. You had your chance. You know, you should have taken you should have taken it right away, but I think it's too late now. I think Milwaukee. I think Giannis is the best player in the league. I felt that way for months and months and months. Mm-hmm. I think their team's better than it was last year. They can't get everybody healthy at the same time, but now well, they're going to go to a run where they're going to win like twenty in a row, and everybody's going to be like, Milwaukee. Whoa! I will say my wild card in the East is Chicago. Having seen them play twice. Man, they could they could upset a couple of teams. I don't know if they're going to go to the. Finals. Oh yeah, you were there last night, right? I was there last night. And I How s- about the fact that they didn't sign DeRozan and they could have? <sighs> I saw them play the Lakers. Believe. Do you know how painful it was that Laker game against the Bulls with yeah. DeRozan playing and Lonzo Ball killing us and Alex Caruso crushing us? I mean, it hurt so bad on so many different levels. You guys, Caruso is so good. You, he destroyed the Knicks last night so many times. Listen. I would pretend that it doesn't delight me to tell you this. It does, but it does. delight you. I can see it in your face. The Lakers are done. You got your bubble title, and you're not when winning your again last with this title? team. Wait, a long time ago, 2008. Oh, that's right. That's right. You got the bubble title. It's fine. You had but- a chance in two years later. Oh, that's right. We beat you. That's right. I forgot. You you crippled our center, and you beat us that's by right. a point. We beat you. Um, but we did win it a year and a half ago. You did. And that was the last time you're going to win it with but LeBron and Anthony You're Davis. saying this, but I'm saying you haven't won it in almost 15 I'm years. I'm just saying, like, the Westbrook trade was, like, game, set, match. There's no way out of the trade, and you can't we'll win see. with the team you have. We'll see. You say, well, you have a trade? We don't need a trade. Um, we'll see. I'm not, you know what? A lot of people are down on Westbrook, but we'll see. Westbrook plays better in the second half of the season than the first. You know, much better. You know what I like about you is... What a loyal Laker fan! Yes, it's one of your best qualities. Those are You're my a loyal boys. fan. You're a loyal fan. You picked the pack, the Pats to win the Super Bowl. We got to go to a game this year with uh, with wearing wearing uh, hazmat suits to protect <laughs> ourselves from the Omicron virus, which <laughs> might give us uh, the mild flu for a day. Oh man, it would be great. Anyhow, guys, Bill Simmons, make sure you listen to all his stuff on the Ringer. All that. Uh, don't forget to watch Music Box and listen to the Real Watchables. There's so much. There's so I know. much. So much. Trying to provide content for everybody. It was good to see you, though. It's Thanks for having me. It's great seeing you, too. Thanks. Peace.